1: welcome to new books in science technology and society i'm lucas rappel and today i'll be speaking with adrian curry who's a lecturer of philosophy at the university of exeter in the uk adrian is a philosopher of science with a focus on the philosophy of biology the philosophy of the historical sciences as well as social epistemology and the philosophy of history today we'll be speaking about adrian's recent book rock bone and ruin an optimist's guide to the historical sciences which was published by mit in 2018 by and large philosophers have been pessimists about the historical sciences lamenting how difficult it is to produce reliable knowledge about the deep past their despair tends to derive from the fact that we study the past indirectly through historical traces that have survived the ravages of time but this body of evidence is spotty at best, and worse yet, it tends to dissipate and degrade over time. In this refreshing new book, Adrian offers a more optimistic perspective. Rather than dwell on the difficulties of learning about prehistory, he thinks that we should be sanguine and confident in our efforts to know the past. In an effort to ground this rosy epistemic disposition, Curry covers a remarkably gro- broad range of philosophical ground— engaging a rich array of cognitive practices that scientists use to produce knowledge about prehistory. Indeed, I would cite Curry's infectious enthusiasm for characterizing what he aptly describes as the omnivorous style that predominates in the historical sciences, whose practitioners must learn to find and exploit all lines of evidence available to them as the main strength of this book. Thus, Curry shows that insofar as it encourages philosophers to investigate all of the diverse ways that scientists get to know the past, exuberant optimism has much to recommend it indeed. Adrian Curry has written an incredibly thought-provoking book, and it is a pleasure to speak with him about it in detail. Welcome, Adrian, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society.
0: Hi, Lucas. Happy to be here.
1: Great. So I wanted to start... By asking you about the subtitle of your book, which is An Optimist's Guide to the Historical Sciences. So I wanted to just kind of as a way of maybe introducing listeners to this book, have you talk a little bit about what the historical sciences are, maybe what distinguishes them from other non-historical sciences, and then also to say a little bit about the optimism bit of the subtitle. So what is it about the historical sciences that's made other philosophers be very pessimistic? And maybe if you have anything to say about why you think we should have a slightly more optimistic take on these sciences. All right, so um, explain the entire
0: book. Good, I can do that. Um, So, the historical sciences often are explained as being just a list. You say, you know, those sciences that care about the deep past. So, paleontology, archaeology, geology, maybe say cosmology if you're feeling fancy. Um, There's a question about whether or not we should think of these as being somehow separate or different or special from other sciences, those that either don't really care about the past or have a sort of shallow window into the past. I tend to think that that's the wrong sort of distinction to be drawing. Um, I don't think we should be interested in uh, things like paleontology or archaeology because there's something uh, specially distinctive about them as opposed to other sciences. Rather, I think that there are particular kinds of circumstances that they often find themselves in. And those circumstances um, lead to and raise a bunch of really interesting um, philosophical challenges um, to the way we think about knowledge that um, other sciences often don't. So it's not the case of you know there being a clear demarcation between things like paleontology and the other sciences. I rather think that Looking at the historical sciences raises a bunch of um, interesting epistemic situations, as I call them. so for instance, uh, if you're a paleontologist or an archaeologist, you're often working under what you might call um, uh, let's call it evidential impoverishment right um, you don't have very much data. the data that you have tends to be degraded, tends to be very fragile, you tend to not be able to repeat. Um, the sort of generation of your data or the experiments you might do in it, right? You dig up a bone. If you break that bone, the bone's broken, and you might try and glue it back together again, but it's pretty hard. And that looks quite different to sciences where, you know, you're using a, say, DNA sequencer, using a model organisms. So you can just you know, heaps of the organisms, you've got <laughs> heaps of capacity to DNA sequence, you can generate enormous amounts of data, and so I think it's really interesting to look at these sciences that are in these quite different situations than um, the sciences that philosophers usually look at. So that's why I'm interested in things like paleontology and archaeology and geology, other than them just being, you know, sciences that I
1: care about. So, so it's really the epistemic challenges of the historical sciences that made you interested in writing a book about them.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason I wrote the book was in part just you know, as weirdly as a philosopher falling in love with the way that scientists go about finding out about the deep past. So one of the things I really try and emphasize is the kind of creativity and this kind of really interesting speculative strategies that these scientists adopt. Um, and I find that just really fascinating, um, from a, um, yeah, but, but as, a, as a philosopher, they're just a different set of sciences than the ones we've looked at, but I don't think we should start by trying to, as it were, like define them, try and get a <laughs> clear analysis of what an historical science is. We should just jump in and have a look at what they're doing and see whether that looks different to the things
1: that we've found in other sorts of sciences. So, so a kind of an approach that's like looking at the scientific practices that are being deployed by particular scientists engaged in studying the deep past or something like that.
0: Yeah, so one way of thinking about my method or my approach is that on the one hand, it's very, very traditional philosophy of science in the sense that I'm very struck by how successful these scientists are, and I'm interested in giving a kind of normative explanation as to why it is they're so successful, and that's very, very standard, you know, (laughs) that's what philosophers of science do, Um, except the way that I do that is in in a way different because I'm not trying to give a... um, as it were, a completely abstract characterization of, say, evidence, I'm more interested in um, analyzing the strategies that these scientists adopt, given the kind of context they're within, and trying to understand how those strategies lead to, um, you know, bountiful knowledge generation.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I, I want to ask you about some of those strategies later on in this interview. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to kind of lay out some of the groundwork uh, for the kind of picture that you present or the kind of view that you present. And to do that, um, I want to ask you about something that you were kind of alluding to, it seemed to me earlier, which is what's often described as the poverty of the fossil record, right? The kind of earth of epistemic material that um, people engaged in studying the deep past have to work with. And in your book, you offer, um, you, you write a great deal about what you call traces. So things that have survived from the past into the present. So I wanted to ask you if you could just tell us a little bit more about what a trace is, what constitutes a trace, and then how these things, these traces are used by practitioners of the historical sciences to make knowledge about the past.
0: Great. Well, I guess one way you might characterize what an historical science is, is a science of traces. So we can casually think about a trace as just being, you know, some current object, some current observation that you take as being shaped by the past in a particular way. It's shaped by its history. And so you can use its history to find out about the past. So I find a funny shaped rock. Um, I think this rock is funny shaped because, you know, it used to be <laughs> a bone right? and through mineralization or whatever it is and become a fossil over time. And so because I have knowledge of fossilization, because I know how that process works, I'm able to use this funny shaped rock to inform me about the organism that's kind of, as it were, you know, upstream of it, (laughs) this critter in the past that has, through this long, complicated process, turned into a sort of funny shaped rock. And so a trace is really maybe a remnant is one way you might think of it. you know, the sort of classic way that people often think about traces is thinking about how detectives do their business, right? You um, go to a crime scene, there's some blood, you can look at the splattering of the blood, you can look for footsteps, uh, sorry, fingerprints, and so on and so forth, murder weapon. These are all, as it were, downstream um, effects of this murder that's occurred. And so by looking at them, you can reconstruct the murder. And so at base, what I mean by a trace is some current thing, something I'm now looking at, that we can understand um, as being the remnants of some past event. And so I can use it to get evidence of that past event.
1: Yeah, one thing that um, struck me in reading your book uh, is the important role that you assign to what you call mid-range theories in Mm -hmm. your discussion of traces. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what mid-range theories are, what constitutes a mid-range theory, and also especially maybe why you think mid-range theories are so important, not just to the way we use traces, but even, in fact, to the kind of um, question about whether or not an object constitutes a genuine trace.
0: Right. So in the uh, example I just gave of, you know, the funny shaped rock to the um, extinct animal, um, I mentioned the importance of our understanding of the process of fossilization. There's a theory that I have that links my trace, my currently observable thing, to this thing in the past, And that's what um, I at least call a mid-range theory. Um, Quick aside, that is a term that's from uh, middle-range theory, which is a term from archaeology. And there, it sometimes means the way I use it. Philosophers before me seem to have picked it up using it in that way. But occasionally people use it to mean... um, something a little bit different. So I think that's one reason why I say mid-range rather than middle-range theory. But very basically, a middle-range theory is a, a bit of theory, a, a model, if you want, a generalization, an account of some type of process that allows me to link my trace to the past. And one of the, I guess, conceptual moves I make in the book, is I say, something as a trace in virtue of us having a justified middle range theory that allows us to do that linking, which is quite counterintuitive because it means that, for instance, um, before we had a theory of fossilization, fossils weren't traces of the past. It's only um, once that theory is developed that these things become traces. Um, I say in the book that that's um, more or less kind of putative. um, I'm not you know, At that point, I wasn't so interested in like explicitly defending that. I was rather saying, this is useful, <laughs> let's use this definition. Um, and I'm not too decided at this point whether it's uh, something which I think is really important and really necessary or something which is just useful for Adrian.
1: Yeah, I have to admit, this is a, a part of the argument that I was myself quite puzzled with, this idea that somehow the ontological status of an object, its tracehood, depends on the epistemic state of the person who's interacting or engaging with the object. So, for example, when in the 19th century, Lakota Sioux Indians came across dinosaur bones, they were not, in fact, engaging with dinosaur bones. Or an even, maybe even more tendentious kind of thought experiment. Uh, imagine uh, a possible future scenario in which Donald Trump is reelected as the president of the United States The United States turns into eventually a kind of white nationalist ethno-state ruled by a religious theocracy that decrees dinosaur bones are in fact not evidence of past life. And paleontologists accept that instead they're evidence of some biblical creature. Now all of a sudden these funny-shaped rocks in fact no longer constitute traces of dinosaurs, uh, uh, that they lose that ontological status because the mid-range theories that are accepted by the community have changed.
0: Good. So I think the um, <laughs> one of the things that's going on here is one of the reasons why I'm kind of a bit relaxed about my account of Trace is because I think you can capture both ways of talking relatively easily. I think it's what you would say pejoratively semantic. So by my account, in the analysis you just gave, where we have, I guess, a very disastrous version of what sometimes people call Kuhn loss, where we <laughs> change our general theory and there's a bunch of things that we no longer know um, so we no longer have a theory of fossilization. By my account of trace, it's true that um, fossils are no longer traces of past dinosaurs. But that doesn't change the fact that these funny shaped rocks are causally downstream um, of extinct animals um, in virtue of them going through a process of fossilization. So the account of trace I have is ontological plus knowledge. So the ontological status in some sense is not changing. It's still as a fact of the matter. This thing was formed by this fossilization process. It's just that by my account, it's not a trace. So that's what I mean by being kind of pejoratively semantic. So I can just change my hat (laughs) and describe it in one way or describe it in the other And so far as I can tell, not much is turning on it. The reason that I like this knowledge-dependent conception of trace is that it lets me not worry so much about other things that philosophers tend to get caught up on. So what account of causation are you using here? If you think that traces involve information being retained, what do you mean by information? And so in a sense, me just making it relevant to our knowledge states allows me to um, miss a bunch of sort of complicated metaphysical discussions that I think kind of get in the way. Although, as your question points out, it may be that I then run into a bunch of another slightly annoying questions, but such is philosophy.
1: Yeah, it's always a game of trade-offs. So traces are, the idea of the trace is more the kind of function that an object has within an epistemic community or something like that, rather than just its causal connection to the past. That's
0: exactly right. And that's why the word trace is a bit weird. I think at some point I say, well, if you want to call it sort of, you know, a putative trace or something like that, that's okay. I'm not too worried about it. But, yeah, one of the reasons, which you put out, point out nicely, that I go for the knowledge-dependent thing is it allows me to build in this thing's um, sta- epistemic status into its definition, and I find that useful.
1: Um, I wonder if we can move on to another part of your book, which is um... – I took to be really a kind of central, um, maybe the central part of your book, which is where you use this idea or understanding of traces to elaborate something that you call the ripple model of evidence. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could kind of characterize what that model is, kind of give our listeners a sense of uh, what that model looks like and how it helps us to understand the work that practitioners of the historical sciences are doing.
0: Sure. So there's a way that um, when I was develop, it's interesting, when I was developing the ripple model of, model of evidence, I was really what I was really trying to do was um, find a way of putting together two thoughts, which I thought were very plausible that philosophers um, have articulated and other people as well have articulated. One is this idea that evidence degrades over time. So lots of people have talked about this. The main, my main interlocutor was Derek Turner who um, has done a lot of work defending sort of pessimism, which we'll get back to explaining hopefully (laughs) later on in the conversation. Um, he's you know pointed out that um, a lot of these processes that mid-range theories pick out things like fossilization um, are processes which often destroy rather than retain information Um, and he takes that to be reason to think that as time goes by we're going to have less and less remains of the past we should expect there to be less and less traces so that's one kind of I wanted to capture the other is this idea that there's a sense in which as we go along our evidence gets kind of richer in a very particular way and this is something that um, lots of people have actually talked about just not other than say Carol Cleland haven't articulated very clearly which is roughly when an event occurs when something happens various other downstream effects start happening. So if I release a pinball in a pinball machine, there's that one event to me releasing the pinball, then the ball's bouncing, lights are flashing. I'm having various you know, emotions about how I feel about where the ball is, the flippers are going. There's many different downstream effects from that one event. Um, and that means that there are lots of different types of things I can use to infer back to the past. And so if we go back to our crime scene, for instance, it's not merely the blood. It's also the fingerprints. It's also the murder weapon. There's lots of various different traces that are being used to reconstruct that thing in the, that thing in the past. And so it's true that when we're trying to find out about the past, our record tends to be degraded, but it's also true that that record tends to be varied. Now, what I'm trying to do with the Ripple model is give us a kind of metaphor to try and capture that. And the metaphor works like this. It says, well, imagine that I have a nice still pond. Hopefully it's in somewhere, you know, relaxed, comfortable. There's nice plants around it. That doesn't matter, but it makes it nicer to think about. I, you know, release a single, you know, pebble into that pond. Then you'll see ripples coming out. Now imagine that I'm taking um, sort of snapshots as those ripples, you know, go outwards in that pond, um, and now think about um, how much evidence I have about the original drop of that pebble. Um, On the one hand, you want to say that the earlier photos are going to have, uh, are going to be better because the ripples, in a sense, will be less disturbed, right? They won't have interfered with one another. Um, They won't have sort of, you know, fizzled out. You'll have a nice determined ripple. But by the same token, the longer, the further out photos, when I have this wider ripple, there's more stuff there that I can use. There's more um, disturbed water that I can use to find out about the past. And so the idea is when I'm thinking about um, how much access, how much evidence, how many traces I'm going to have about some past event, I should think about it in terms of how much, as it were, interference there is with my ripple, how much the the ripple as it goes out is getting messed up and interfered with, but also how much of the whole bunch of whole disturbance I can see. Because if I can see lots of it, if I can get access to lots of that disturbance, then I can use lots of different bits of information in order to get back to the past. So really it's just a way of um, thinking about our access to the past, which is using this kind of, you know, Relatively, you know, simple metaphor. Um, one thing that Derek Turner pointed out in his recent book *Paleoesthetics* is that you could think of this as a competitor metaphor for the idea of the fossil record. We think of the fossil record as being um, a record; it's like a thing what is written, <laughs> and we say it's got lots of gaps in it. Where um, on the ripple model of evidence, we're thinking of um, you know, historical evidence or traces as things that are sort of these causal events that are sort of projected across time. Um, I haven't thought too hard about whether I'm happy with that reading, but I think it sounds good anyway.
1: It is very interesting. Uh, I usually think of the fossil record as a kind of archive. So here I'm kind of, uh, I was pretty influenced by the work of David Sapkowski in this respect, that the, the fossil record is a kind of natural archive. But you're definitely right. The Ripple model, if we kind of put them into conversation, it presents a very different sort of image for how to think about the relationship between the present and the past. Yeah, Much more kind of diachronic relationship, I would say.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the idea. I'm sort of trying to think of it in a more dynamic kind of way than, as you say, like, I mean, you can think about archives in dynamic ways. Of course, archives are things that are always getting added to and taken away from. Um, but it
1: is. I think it's a really. And fascinating, if I might point out, like, as yeah. if you've ever spent any time working in an archive, it's also definitely the case that paper falls apart. That you're constantly it's very yeah. dusty. You're sneezing all the time. So things do degrade in archives as well.
0: No doubt. <laughs> yeah, especially if um, the archivists have been foolish enough to let researchers in.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I mean, I was really struck by. I think it's a really provocative claim. This idea that at least in some sense, there's a sense in which the epistemic situation of the observer of the practitioner of the historical sciences actually improves over time because new types and more varied types of evidence become available to him or her. And I wonder if you could... So anyway, earlier you kind of had this invitation uh, to talk a little bit more about the pessimist view. So you present this, I call it an optimist's guide to the historical sciences. So to kind of maybe... Um, uh, I don't know if you want to invoke Derek Turner or or not, but to kind of um, present a more kind of the arguments for a more pessimist uh, sort of take on why we should worry about our ability to reconstruct the past. That maybe uh, uh, the downstream effects underdetermine what the different states of the past could be or something like that.
0: Great. Well, let me first get clear um, on, you know, why I'm using these terms pessimism and optimism and where, where this sort of comes from. And then I'll quickly get to the um, arguments. So I'm talking about um, pessimism for kind of two reasons. The first reason is um, to do with the kind of general attitude that many, many, many scientists, many, many people and some philosophers who have bothered to think about it have about sciences like paleontology, which is roughly that they're rubbish. Right. <laughs> Roughly that they're not very good sciences. Why are they not very good sciences? Well, the evidence is all degraded, right? Look at proper sciences like, I don't know, molecular biology or physics or chemistry. These are sciences where you can run repeatable experiments. These are sciences where you can um, get bountiful data, you can generate your own data. You're not beholden to the sort of hand of fate in the way that paleontologists are, right? If you're a paleontologist, and you want to find out about you know, a particular um, lineage, well, you have to be lucky enough for the thing to be fossilized. You have to be lucky enough for that fossil to be found. You have to be lucky enough for that fossil to be found by someone who cares enough about it or knows enough. You then have to be lucky enough for that fossil having been found, then getting to the right place to get prepared, da 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 There's all of these contingencies involved in getting paleontological, archaeological, and geological data. Um, and so people say, well, this is just a sort of bad science, is one, or at least a less good science. Um, and Derek Turner, I think, is um, someone who's done a really nice job of articulating um, why you might have that kind of attitude. And it's worth pointing out with Derek is that it's not as if he thinks that they're bad scientists. He would not like that reading. He thinks they're extremely good scientists who are working under extremely difficult circumstances. So it's not as if um, in a sense, it would be unfair to kind of compare them in terms of good science. But anyway, so that's sort of
1: yeah. One. Maybe you yeah. could say rather than it, rather than it being a, a bad science, it's just a very hard science.
0: Yeah. So there's a joke I often make when people talk about physics. Right? Say, well, that's one of the you know the easy sciences because you just build a big thing and it does an experiment and that's all very easy. And you've got this nice mathematics that, you know, fits quite nicely. The really hard scientists are things where you've got a single tooth and you're trying to work out (laughs) what, what sort of thing used to bear this tooth. Um, but I mean that of course, mostly facetiously. Um, yes. So there's this sort of general attitude, I think that people have towards the past, um, that I call pessimism, which is roughly the idea that, um, we're not going to find out very much. One place where you see this expressed quite often is in um, uh, people trying to understand the evolution of our own species, people interested in paleoanthropology. So there you'll quite often find people saying, look, you keep trying to find out things about the evolution of the human mind, um, these sorts of things, but you just we just don't have that kind of information. You can't really have a science of that. And so there's one of these places where this sort of pessimistic attitude is put in. The reason why... I use pessimism in particular, is there's a very, very rich, very storied um, philosophical tradition of thinking about scientific success in terms of realism or anti-realism. And I'm trying really hard to avoid that discussion because in short, I tend to think it's just not very useful. I tend to think it's overly concerned with um, a set of questions like about whether or not atoms exist or whatever that I don't find myself particularly interested in, and I'm trying to use this notion of pessimism and optimism to open up a different sort of discussion that is still about success. So with all that setting up, very quickly, a pessimist is someone who looks at the sort of strategies and the affordances that a set of scientists have, right? You look at the paleontologists, you see that they just have the traces. You say, oh, well, traces are degraded. It's like a bad record. It's a very badly managed and very degraded archive, if you want. And then you make a pessimistic bet. You say, we're not going to find out very much. We're not going to learn very much from that science. An optimist, by contrast, looks at you know, perhaps the same science, and makes a optimistic bet, a positive bet, where they say, you know, I think actually we're going to learn a lot. And so the way the argument between the pessimist and the optimist works is you say, well, here are the resources that these scientists have at their command, and here are the sort of strategies they adopt, and here's why that's, you know, a good way of generating evidence, and or here's why this is a bad way of generating evidence. Um, So it's kind of important to see that, uh, I at least claim that when I talk about optimism and pessimism i don 't mean something like um, seeing a glass half full and um, you know versus seeing a glass half empty Those two don 't have an empirical disagreement; they just have a disagreement about the attitude we should take towards the glass um, and the, how full and you know the attitude we have towards it being full half full or half empty whereas the um, my type of optimist or pessimist is making a bet they do have a disagreement about the way the future will go and um, one thinks that the science will be very progressive we'll learn lots of cool new stuff the other
1: thinks that we won't so it's not just a kind of dispositional question but there's more to it than that i i'm curious about if you could explain a little bit more i'm, I'm a bit puzzled about the claim that you made earlier about realism anti-realism so you, you would say if you could just walk me through it so you would say that the optimist is willing to take a bet on the future, that, w- that this science will produce lots of genuine knowledge about the past and the future, and it has the resources to do so. But that doesn't imply that the optimist is a realist about that science, which is to say that the uh, entities or the theories that those sciences propose truly did exist in the past, or that they're truly representative of what in fact happened in the past.
0: Well, we need to be a little bit careful here because um, when I said that the debate from about realism and anti-realism is very storied, that was a polite way of saying that when a philosophical debate has gone on for long enough, it gets so subtle and so... Um, kind of uh, difficult to tell what the differences are between the various opinions, that it becomes quite difficult to really say anything. But very roughly, if you're a realist, you're committed to a set of claims along the lines of, well, science aims for truth. There is this kind of epistemic good called truth, and that's what the scientists try and get. Um, And in fact, sometimes they get there at least across some range of truths. So there are of different types of realists, you know, depends upon what sort of truths or sort of objects you think scientists are getting knowledge of. Um, and of course, there are people who count as anti-realists, like instrumentalists, for instance, who think something extremely similar. You know, they think that scientists are aiming for not truth, but the ability to correctly predict um, the way that various phenomena are going to behave, which I think most people, you know, if you're a member of the public, you'd be like, yeah, so truth, right? <laughs> Being able to make truth, true predictions seems like caring about truth, but no, it doesn't. <laughs> There's a sort of subtle difference there, um, and so whether or not, I mean, it would be very surprising if it turned out that um, most optimists also tended to be anti-realists, and most pessimists tended to be realists. But the positions are, I guess, logically independent at the very least. I'm perfectly able. To be, say, an instrumentalist, someone who thinks that you don't gain knowledge of um, the underlying reality of things. Um, you just gain the, the capacity to predict the way things will turn out, to predict the way various systems or phenomena will behave. You think that's the knowledge that science gives you while being extremely optimistic about it. Right. You can say we're going to be able to predict all kinds of things. We're going to be able to accommodate all sorts of stuff, but I'll never be able to tell you whether there are truly electrons. That's beyond the scope of what science can do, and so it's perfectly—you're perfectly—it's perfectly perfectly possible to be, say, an anti-realist
1: optimist. Um, Does that help? Somewhat. I'm still a bit puzzled. So, what would it mean to make a prediction about in the historical sciences? So. A prediction about what sorts of fossils we'll find next or, yeah, what what role does prediction say, play in the historical sciences?
0: Well, it depends. I think there are two ways that prediction plays a role in the historical sciences. One was, I think there's probably lots of ways. Um We need to be very careful careful what we mean by prediction. Sometimes when people say prediction, they mean very, a very specific thing. They mean a very precise prediction, but I'm going to be more relaxed and just mean, you know, a prognostication, a guess about how the future might go, right? So one way in which predictions um, are really important is exactly as you just said, right? Predicting where the fossils will be. This is critically important, of course, in a lot of geology, right? Most geology isn't really an historical science. A lot of geology is telling people where to mine, right? And that is just making predictions about where you're going to find the the oil or whatever, Um Whereas in paleontology, right, you're you're having to predict where you're going to find the fossils when you dig them. You're also forming hypotheses along the lines of, oh, well, you know, um, there's a ghost lineage here. So we've got a gap, as it were, in the fossil record. I imagine there'll be something like this in there. That's a certain type of prediction. Um, but also, I think more interestingly, you're having to make predictions all the time about what kind of research is going to be um, a a good way forward? What, you know, um, Mm. what sorts of hypotheses should I chase up? Those sorts of questions. So I think predictions play a really important role. um, But that wasn't quite what I was trying to get at with that. It was more that um, there are certain forms of anti-realism that um, fit perfectly well with being optimistic, because ultimately, really, all that realists and anti-realists disagree about Mm. is Um, what the sort of, what type of epistemic good, what type of knowledge thing scientists are after? Is it, um, you know, the truth, where truth means understanding the, um, I don't know, fundamental essence of something, something like that? Or is it just um, capturing the phenomena? Is it just, for instance, being able to come up with a set of hypotheses which explain patterns we might see in the fossil record? Right. So a version of an instrumentalist in paleontology might be someone who thinks that, say, I might be able to look at a pattern in the fossil record, and I might be able to sort of posit a um, hypothesis about a macroevolutionary process which is able to predict the patterns that I'm going to see. Um, but there are going to be other processes that I might have that would also um, predict the same pattern. And I'm never going to get to with which of those processes it is. But nonetheless, I do have a real thing I've gained. I've gained the ability to um, make various predictions about patterns across the fossil record.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I guess part of my puzzlement that is lingering somewhat is that it does seem like a lot of what the historical sciences, I'm thinking of paleontology maybe in particular, engage themselves with is building these fairly elaborate um, sort of reconstructions of the deep past, what life was like in the deep past, what organisms looked like, what their physiology was, what their behavioral ecology was, how they interacted with one another. And it seems like if you want to be an a anti-realist optimist, a lot of those sorts of theories, if you don't want to say that we're after the literal truth in that kind of sense, a lot of those sorts of activities or theories would be difficult if not unavailable to you.
0: I never said it was a good position.
1: So, so, so it just so, one doesn't, <laughs> optimism doesn't logically imply realism, but there's other reasons maybe we should be realists anyway.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, as is hopefully relatively obvious, I am in my heart of hearts a realist. Um, I just don't think that that way of framing explanations of scientific success are um, particularly useful anymore. Um, I think that we've been doing it for a long time, people are starting to, there are still people doing extremely interesting work, no doubt, that, that have that framing. But I think that for a lot of the sort of questions I want to ask, which are more about, as it were, the strategies that scientists adopt, um, in the face of these sort of epistemic challenges, this evidential impoverishment, for instance, um, then realism and anti-realism becomes this kind of annoying lodestone that makes it harder to talk about the thing that I think is interesting. So, um, yeah, so, so of course, so, so the claim is that this is a different sort of set of questions you might be asking, technically, they're logically independent, no doubt, you know, we should probably be realists for the reason you just sort of said, it seems kind of weird to try and understand why would archaeologists, for instance, spend so much time, um, giving these very rich reconstructions of the past, if what they're ultimately interested in doing was just, you know capturing the surface structure or something like that. It, it seems kind of surprising that they would do that.
1: Okay. So I take your point and let's move on in our discussion uh, away from how many angels we can fit upon the pinhead of anti-realism or realism and instead ask about what you describe in the book as the omnivorous style of the historical sciences. So I thought this was probably one of the really most fascinating. It's basically the second half of the book where you go in detail, a number of case studies and look at The sorts of work that practitioners of the historical sciences engage in, and the rich array and diverse array of different sorts of practices that are used. And I wonder if you could just maybe walk us through one or two of those. So, what some of those practices are and how they uh, work in the historical sciences.
0: Sure. So, well, first off, it might be worth sort of pointing out, um, as you just mentioned, in terms of the structure of the book, there are really two halves. The first half is telling you what traces are and building this model of um, this ripple model. The whole point of that in the end, in terms of the book, is me going, here is um, a particular way that people tend to think about the historical sciences, and this leads them towards pessimism. And in particular, what they do is they think about the way that we can understand the past entirely in terms of traces, right? The way that you get to be a, um, a pessimist is you say, to understand, to get access to the past, What I can do is look at traces, look at these downstream effects of past events. Because downstream effects of past events tend to be degraded, I won't be able to find out very much. That's the kind of pretty direct argument for pessimism. What I'm doing with the the ripple model of evidence is saying that encapsulates what counts as traces. So the challenge in the second half of the book is to find sources of evidence um, that are not captured by the ripple model, that are not captured by traces. Now, one of the first things I say, and um, this is we get into this methodological omnivory, is, look, if you're trying to understand how paleontologists and archaeologists and you know other historical scientists go about their work, what you shouldn't do is the kind of move that philosophers in particular are very tempted by, which is try and have a method. Try and say, here's a paradigm way of being a paleontologist, right? Similarly to how people sometimes say, here is the scientific method. Some philosophers attempted to say, um, here is the paleontological method, or at least the historical scientific method. And I think that's a mistake. I think that what the thing that I'm always struck by with archaeologists and paleontologists in particular is how creative and flexible they are. Um, so I have this term called uh, being a methodological omnivore, and we may as well cash out the <laughs> rather. Uh, yeah, know, let's cash out the metaphor. So you have, you know, in say an obligate carnivore and an omnivore, your obligate carnivore might be something like a polar bear. Your, um, omnivore might be say a brown bear or a black bear. So your, um, polar bears are extremely good at doing one thing. <laughs> They're very, very good. at, I guess eating seals <laughs> and hunting them <laughs> for a long time. Brown bears um, are very, very good at um, a range of different things. They will do whatever they can to maximize their um, uh, their calorie intake. You know, So in North America, for instance, I think some ridiculously large percentage of brown bear calories are actually from eating moths as opposed to kind of catching salmon, right? They'll do whatever they can to increase their calories. There's, okay, there's the case. <laughs> How does this relate to science? Well, I think that um, paleontologists and archaeologists are best thought of like brown bears rather than polar bears, right? They don't have one trick that works really, really well. Rather, they have a whole bunch of tricks that work kind of (laughs) okay. And so the strategy is throwing things against the wall and trying to get them to stick. Um, And I think that's a brilliant strategy when you're dealing with this kind of impoverishment, when you're not going to have much data, because by doing that, you're going to be able to have lots of different pieces of pieces of the puzzle and you're able to start thinking about how those things fit together. And so when I say that um paleontology and archaeologists are methodological omnivores, what I mean is there is no, as it were, essence to being a paleontologist. There is no the method. There is rather um this sort of uh creative um attitude where what you do is you continually develop new techniques new technologies, you continually try and think as to be, you know, embarrassing outside of the box in various ways, um, because you need to do that in order to get access to the past. So it's not just that they happen to be methodological omnivores, they have this kind of very pluralistic method. It's also that um, that explains, I think, why they're successful. It's because they don't specialize in quite the same way as other scientists tend to.
1: Wonderful, um if I could get you to speak to one um, one particular um, sort of type of activity or practice that uh, uh, the, in which the historical sciences engage, one that I found particularly interesting. so there's this problem that you've alluded to a couple of times before, which is that um, people who are obsessed with the kind of poverty of the fossil record often point out that one important difference between the historical sciences and other sciences like physics or chemistry is sciences that perhaps we used to call nomothetic sciences. Um, One important difference is that practitioners of those sciences, i.e. physicists and chemists, can produce experiments, can engage in experimental practices to produce new evidence, whereas practitioners of the historical sciences are more or less stuck with the evidence that we've got. If there's a dinosaur that went extinct and never left a fossil behind, we will never know about it. Anyway, so one thing that I thought was super interesting in your book is the way that you discuss a practice of building idealism Idealized models and different kinds of simulation, computer simulations, and other kinds of simulations, as a way of producing new kinds of evidence in the historical sciences. So, not quite the same thing as an experiment, but something that, a kind of practice that is in some interesting ways analogous to experimentation.
0: Right. So, yeah, one of the big moves later on in the book is to make this claim that. We can think of simulations as being very similar to experiments in the sense that when the pessimist says, hey, paleontologists are you know, beholden to fate in terms of what evidence they have, they can't just make an experiment. We can say, well, actually, under some conditions, they can. Um, so let's have an example. So I won't use the one from the book. I'll, I'll use another one because I think it's a little bit more fun, uh, but I don't have to remember how long extinct shellfish work. Um, so here's a really difficult question um how did dinosaurs walk what was the gait of dinosaurs what makes this really tricky well one thing that makes it tricky is we don't really have any good modern analogues the closest relatives you know currently living to dinosaurs are birds and crocodiles neither of which get anything like your kind of giant quadruped right if you're you know if you're a 50 ton sauropod you're very very which is your long neck long tail dinosaur and very very different to a um you know, a crocodile and different in stance, different in build, and very different, obviously, to a bird. Um, And maybe we can look at mammals, but, I mean, to be honest, these things are so radically different um, in terms of their ancestry that it will be very unclear, like, why would I think that a mammal can really inform me about this ancient extinct Mm. um, reptile? So um, that makes it really hard, right? And also, of course, you know, it's not like you get um, things like how a thing walks in the fossil record. So how do, you, how do you do this? How do you find it out? Well, there's some really nice work that's been done over the last sort of 10 years where you effectively build a, uh, a simulant. You build a, you know, computerized little sauropod and you kind of teach it to walk very roughly. What you, the way you do this is you grab a reconstruction. So you grab um, you go to a museum and you um, take a whole bunch of electronic photographs of a of a um, reconstruction of a sauropod. You then digitize that, you put it into a um, computer and you layer on sort of things like mus- very basic musculature and joints and so forth. So you have a little simulation of a sort of um, sauropody kind of thingamabob. And then what you do is you use various types of um, usually evolutionary algorithms to f- breed this thing. You know, so you Um, basically breed a whole bunch of these little simulants, these little computer sauropods, and you see which ones walk better. And you do that, you know, hundreds of times. And then you end up with a thing that walks, right? And it seems to walk in a way that you would kind of not be too surprised about how these things walk. Um, So in the studies I'm thinking of, they came up with um, a gate, which was not a gate that's been seen in nature before which is really interesting. This is um, Sellers et al., I think, 2011. Um, So they walk. It turns out that at least by the simulation, the sauropod walks by, um, kind of get an elephant, but then get it to knuckle walk, the way that, say, a chimpanzee will do, um, which is kind of surprising and interesting. Uh, And then you say, well, why should I think? that it actually walked like that? Well, there's a bunch of new things we get out of the simulation. Like, for instance, the simulation also tells me what kinds of trackways I would expect if a critter of this size was walking like that. And lo and behold, it looks like that fits the trackways uh, we in fact have of some of these larger sauropod dinosaurs. Um, So there's actually, I think, some pretty good reason to think that they've managed to capture how this thing walks. And we couldn't have done it without this simulation, right? No doubt that evidence is embedded with all of the other evidence we have. It's, you know, it's only because I have those trackways, for instance, that I'm able to make the inference. But it's also true that without that simulation, I wouldn't have gotten there. The simulation is generating new evidence that allows me to find out about the past. And it's one example of how we uh, kind of go beyond just traces. We do a lot more. Um, then simply grabbing a hunk of funny shaped rock and going, how did this funny shaped rock <laughs> turn out to be such a funny shape?
1: Yeah, that's a great example. Another one that I was thinking of as you were speaking is the research that was done on uh, Microraptor, I think a dinosaur that was found in Liaoning province in northeastern China where researchers built a physical model of this thing. So it's a gliding dinosaur, a kind of precursor to modern birds. Researchers built a physical model of this thing and literally put it inside of a wind tunnel to try to figure out what configuration of the arms and the legs produced different uh, modes of flight to try to figure out how this thing might have behaved. Right, right, exactly how yeah, you, might, you might test an airplane um, in a wind yeah, tunnel. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So as kind of maybe, uh, we're already at the 45-minute mark, so maybe I'll ask you one final question, which is, as follows. So I think, uh, I suspect that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are themselves historians, perhaps more so than philosophers. And so I was wondering if um, our conversation today in your book has been about the historical sciences, so sciences like archaeology, paleontology, geology, and so on and so forth. But it strikes me that there must be ways in which the uh, kind of your thinking on these topics also has implications for historians who study the more recent past. So, so kind of historians of Uh, human history so I was wondering if you have any thoughts about uh, kind of insights or I don't know more practical recommendations or anything at all that you um, kind of words of advice for our listeners who are historians
0: (laughs) Um, I I don't think I'd be so presumptuous as to try and advise historians in terms of how to do their work Um, I mean I have always been I'm getting better at it but I've I've tended to be a little bit worried about treading too far into history simply because um, you know uh, historiography and historians um, and philosophy of history, for that matter, um, are very, very sort of um, rich traditions um, that I often am not entirely convinced that I understand too well. I'm working at it, getting a bit better. But with that caveat, <laughs> I do tend to think that most of what I have to say about the historical sciences are going to apply relatively straightforwardly to history. Um, I tend to think that historians also engage in a lot of sort of very, very similar sorts of practices. Now, no doubt they're using very different types of evidence, a very traditional history where you're reading words and trying to interpret them right, um, is a very different type of record than using the fossil record. But I think it's pretty clear when you look at the way that, for instance, historians disagree with one another, that they are, in a sense, using certain types of usually kind of tacit middle range theories. They're not as explicit as how fossilization works, but there's still some sort of systematic kind of thinking going on. Um, you might think that humans are a particularly difficult and idiosyncratic and obstinate kind of critter to try and understand. After all, we have these you know, tricky intentions. And it seems like understanding our intentions is critically important for explaining why we behave the way that we do. Um, and I agree that that's really, really hard, but it's not obvious to me that it's more hard than understanding the function of a dimetrodon sale, for instance. I think that lots and lots of things about finding out about the past are particularly tricky. And it's not obvious to me that there's any kind of special pleading as it were, from human history to say that humans are somehow particularly special or particularly tricky. And so I tend to think that particularly with the way that we haven't talked about this, but particularly the way that historians use narrative is, I think, very similar to how, say, paleontologists and archaeologists use narrative. Um, And perhaps one of the reasons why to sort of think about my own (laughs) position on this stuff, why I tend to be um, bemused by views in the philosophy of history that say that, you know, historical narratives are merely the same as literary narratives, right? They're just kind of more or less um, aesthetically pleasing, arbitrary ways of linking together different bits of the chronological record. Um, is because I see paleontologists and archaeologists having very, very similar practices, and there they look so clearly like going beyond just mere storytelling. The storytelling really does involve hypothesis testing and connecting together things in a coherent way. They're going far beyond just telling a story. And so I tend to think that um, in the case of history, human history, that is, um, we should be... um, very, very willing to see human history as being uh, more or less methodologically um, continuous with what I've been calling the historical sciences. So roughly, I guess, I think that human history is an historical science.
1: Well, that is a wonderfully provocative and I suspect controversial note on which to end. So um, I want to just stop. um, So let, let me just end by thanking you once again, Adrian, for a wonderful conversation.
0: Yeah, Thanks, Lucas. It was a lot of fun.